This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA comes together with the rest of the industry to ask for air show relief. And there's a new jump school for pilots. Also, have you hit anything with your airplane? A new report says you're not alone. And Redbird released a pretty good-looking flight training survey. Finally, AOPA asks for more transparency on ramp labeling. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, a really interesting pilot, Captain Jenny Beatty. And we're talking to her this week because she's been speaking to a lot of groups about women in aviation and advancing the cause of women in aviation. And she has done some studies, Ian, on gender bias in aviation, and that's something that we've touched on recently as well, too. So she's going to tell us a little bit more about that, how we can overcome it. And Captain Beatty wanted to let us know that she was grateful for the support and mentoring of many male flight instructors, pilot friends, chief pilots, supervisors, and others in the aviation industry. But we kind of ran out of time. So she wanted to tip her hat to those folks as well who helped her get to where she is now. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get to the news, two quick announcements. One is that the AOPA Pilot Passport app, if you use that, and you're a Hangar Talk listener, which of course you are, there is a new badge for you. Yeah, Ian, and this is in conjunction with our almost one millionth download for Hangar Talk. We're at 994,000 and change right now. That's awesome. Yeah, and congratulations to you. I still remember when you asked me to do this, I couldn't believe you were serious about it. <laughs> but here we are. I wasn't. I'm not serious about it. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are, the award-winning Hangar Talk uh, podcast. Yes, right. So all you have to do to get this Hangar Talk badge is to use that AOPA Pilot Passport, and you put in a special redemption code, Hangar Talk 21. It's all together. 
and it's uh, just one word and it should work pretty soon. So we're going to go ahead and make that live beginning on the morning of the 25th, which actually will be it'll be before y'all hear this program. So it should be ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, kind of a cool thing. So it gives you some some extra cachet. Yeah. Also, as a way to try and get folks out there flying more, ForeFlight and AOPA have teamed up. If you are a ForeFlight user, they're encouraging you to fly more. And there's a reward program, and they're going to they're gonna move it around the country, and they're starting with the South. So the ForeFlight flyout program, say that quick, real time. Yeah, you know, five, five times. Yeah, right. But yeah. you know, all you got to do, first, if ForeFlight users download that regional pack, and mm-hmm. and it kind of tracks you as you enter into these airports in in the south, and there are several that are listed. And I think the cool thing about this is we want people to get out and fly more in. And we're starting with the south, but listen, everyone in the rest of the country, we're coming to you too. We're gonna we're gonna hit the northeast, we're gonna hit the west, we're gonna hit the Pacific. So different uh, regions will be unveiled, you know, as we move along between now and July. Yeah, so you're going to fly anyway. This gives you a chance of uh, maybe find somewhere new, and maybe you can win something while you do it. So, all right, let's get on to the news. First thing we want to talk about, obviously, uh, all around the, the mainstream media, you've been reading about the major stimulus package that was recently passed. AOPA and others have come together and asked that air shows be part of this relief package, and, and I think there's good cause there. I agree, and I didn't really think about this until we had a story on it that we, we wrote and published. You know, air shows attract more than 10 million visitors, and they're, they're not all pilots. I mean, this is like the community. The community comes out. You know, how many of us come out to see the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or even regional air shows or local air shows? And we're talking about $900 million that's put into the coffers of cities and towns and 20,000 jobs. I mean, they deserve part of that COVID relief. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I read once, I mean, I don't know if this is still the case, but that air shows were after Major League Baseball were the number two spectator activity in the country. So yeah, like you said, 10 million people a year, that's a that's a pretty big industry. And and yeah, many of them in small towns. So I, I do think that makes some sense. So we'll see what's going to happen there. It's AOPA, MBAA, Gamma, EAA, NATA, um, you know, all the big players that you would expect have uh, have been asking for consideration there. Well, I think that's good. And and at, before we move move on, you know, we're almost up to sun and fun season here, so that's going to unfold pretty soon. So uh, yes, that's true. So they need that too. And you know, and some of the places like Sun and Fun use some of that money for their their educational programs. Yeah. So the air, air shows is one thing, the big fly-ins or something else. And, you know, Air Venture also has some educational programs too. So, you know, we, we need to share some of that those funds. Yeah. And, of course, you know, you mentioned educational programs. The other thing it does is support the airport. So if you want to support your community airport, it's like air shows are a great way to do that. They bring in a lot of revenue for local airports. So, hey, moving on, this is a really cool story you found. This is about a, a guy who has started – a not a jump school per se, so not a place where you're going to jump out of an airplane, but where you learn how to fly people who will jump out of airplanes. That's right, Ian. So I didn't know how much went into this, you know, to become a, a commercial pilot and then to have jumpers jump out of your airplane to get to that drop zone, to make those radio calls, to make sure the air, the, the airspace is safe, all that. There's a lot that goes into it, and I didn't realize that, you know, there were special schools for this. So Ed Scott is opening one up in North Carolina, and it's near First Flight Airport. So it's right there on the Outer Banks. And he's listed several different options for the schools. Basically, you're going to get 20 hours in a Cessna 182 that's specially modified 
for 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 skydivers. Wow, that's that's a long course actually, a lot more than you would expect. Yeah, plus five hours on the ground, and 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 the, your basic minimums. You would need, of course, a, a commercial ticket as well, yeah. and you need a, about four hundred hours. Now, if you have more than 400 hours, he's got another course that is a little bit shorter in duration and costs a little bit less money. And if you've got you know, more than 600 hours, there's, again, less money, a little bit less time that you need to get brushed up on the special skills, uh, communication skills, flying skills. And thinking about it, you got to know slow flight. Yeah. Because you got to get up to that 10 or 11,000 foot level to that drop zone area. And you've got to be able to control that airplane while the jumpers, you know, move out onto the platform and jump away. And then also Ed tells me, you know, during the article, I kind of mentioned this, there's a special way that you descend, you descend pretty quick so you can get down and get your next load, but you don't want to shock cool the engine. So there are all these techniques and we're talking about weight and balance. We're talking about mods to the airplane. And did you know, Ian, that as a pilot, you would have to wear an emergency parachute yourself? Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, it's uh, that's a different way to fly a 182, a lot, a lot different way than most people are accustomed to. Well, the doors open. The door actually opens vertically, which I thought was very cool. And there, there's like a little step that goes over that right wheel over, over by the strut. And the skydivers, you know, move out there one by one. The coolest thing of the whole, of the whole situation for me, because I'm not a skydiver yet, but I'm in the Westminster Aerobats Club, and we have a Cessna 152 Aerobat that's capable of aerobatics, but we don't do them yet because we don't have a parachute. That's key, yeah. And here's the other thing, knowing how to use a parachute in an emergency situation. So Ed also offers a $300 course that allows folks who are aerobat, aerobatic pilots, warbird pilots, anyone who needs to use a parachute in an emergency this course will will teach them how to do it, and it's a ground based course. I'm definitely signing up. Yeah, that's actually that's a really great idea because you know I remember I used to teach aerobatics a little bit, and it's like you know the student and I, I teach them how to put on the parachute and how to you know release the canopy and all that stuff. And but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking the whole time, if it actually came to it, I have no idea how this is going to work out. Having never have to bail out of anything, no real formal bailout training. So I think there's a ton of value there. That's a that's a really good idea. So you never did bailout training? No, no. Man. I mean, we you know we learned how to put on the parachute, like I said, and release the harness and release the canopy and that kind of stuff. But it's like other than that, you just sort of you know I just thought, well, go for it, you know. <laughs> so it's well, you um, don't want to find yourself yeah. in that situation. But Ed told me, and this is really important. He goes, you know, David, you don't want the first time that you depend on a parachute to be the first time that you're dependent yeah. on a parachute and not yes, knowing what to yeah. do. One other cool thing that he hopes to have on board pretty soon is um, a pretty cool emergency parachute that's actually a lot more reasonable than some that are out there. And we're talking about the $2,500 to $2,700 range, and it's called the Aviator. So that's a parachute that Ed hopes to be selling over there in North Carolina. It's at the Dare County Regional Airport. It's really close to first flight. So if you go on down there, spend some time at the Wright Brothers Monument and check it out. Cool. Okay. Hey, moving on, I want to talk about something that on its face, I know is going to be a little, you know, maybe seems a little boring, but I'm, I promise you is really fascinating. And that is wildlife collisions with aircraft. Now, this is something a lot of us don't think about, of course, except for, you know, Miracle on the Hudson. But a new study just came out that looked at 30 years of data involving wildlife strikes. And it is fascinating. I just think this is the coolest story. 
let's just say this happens a heck of a lot more than I ever thought it did. Give us some of the numbers, Ian. I'm really inquisitive about this. How many times are there airstrikes? Wildlife strikes, yeah. Yeah, so in in 2019, well, let's back up a little bit. In 1990, the, uh, the FAA recorded 1,850 wildlife strikes. So you think, okay, well, you know, that's fine. That, there was a lot more flying activity in 1990, but it's like, whatever. I, obviously, over the years, as maybe the reporting has gotten easier or, you know, there's been greater awareness, in 2019, there were 17,228 reports of wildlife strikes. Up from 1850 in 1990. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, in that 30 years. It's amazing. I just, uh, that, that blew me away. What was interesting also to me, Ian, is that out of those wildlife strikes, there's a category for reptiles in there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, so between 1990 and 2019, and Dan Namowitz wrote this, so tip of the hat to Dan, 27 alligators, 24 green iguanas, and one spectacled caiman have been struck that, yeah, by civil aircraft amazing. in the U.S., Yes. And people have reported, of course, you would expect, you know, lots of birds. Many people have reported bats, uh-huh. which surprised me, other mammals, and of course, deer, you know, some we always think about, you know, in the air, bird strikes, but, uh, but, you know, on landing deer strikes and that, that you, you told me something really interesting, which is that you learn this happens in a, in a very specific time of the year. Yeah. yeah and I want to share that with other folks. I'm not a hunter. So I want to share this with folks who might not be hunters as well, but look, look out for, look out from October to late November, because that's the the rutting season, 29% of all deer strikes occurred during those months. And listen, one of those deers, one of those deer jumped on my wife Lisa's car, wasn't at an airport, was just on a highway, and it and it totaled the vehicle. Fortunately, she wasn't hurt. Can't say the same for the deer. But you know, some of these animals are pretty hefty. And if you struck a deer with an aircraft, it really would be problematic for for all involved. Yes, absolutely. The the last thing I want to talk about here just that I think is amazing is that the highest strike that's been recorded is 31,300 feet. How so, how did a bird get that high? I'm I assuming it was a bird amazing. and not a deer. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming <laughs> that's like it's like the Far Side comic where the goats in the cloud, right? Because it's on top of the mountain. Yeah, no, I th- I, b- I do believe it was a bird. It would have to be probably something that's riding a thermal. I would guess I like guess. an eagle or a hawk 000. or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, flying the helicopter, it's like you're always always on the lookout for these things because you're constantly down where they are, you know. And you think in an airplane, oh, once you get above like I don't know eight ten thousand, that you're probably pretty safe, but clearly not just amazing 31,000 feet and you're right coming in on a landing even you know getting getting kind of low in that pattern in 500 feet to a thousand feet we're all on pretty high alert for birds absolutely especially in the summer yeah yeah so if you have a bird strike or a reptile hit or a you know a deer strike or something like that you can report it via the FAA and uh, be one of what 17,000 people to do so so incredible stuff Moving on, Redbird just released a flight training survey, and I don't know, David, the news is actually looking pretty good. I would say it is good news for students, flight training professionals, and really general aviation in general. And the whole deal was Redbird, the folks who make flight simulators, put the survey out in February. It only took about seven or eight minutes to fill it out. I I did it myself. 
And what we found was that really the industry is pretty healthy right now, despite of the COVID pandemic, which slowed things down a lot because there was a lot of confusion, Ian, about a year ago. We didn't know if we could do flight training. You know, there were a lot of travel restrictions and a, and a lot of folks at uh, on the local level and the state level kind of battled through that. We talked about it here on the Hangar Talk, you know, about how you can continue your flight training. But it's overall good news. 2,400 people responded and the largest group among them were private pilots followed by those with instrument ratings. Yeah, so they said that, you know, most responses said that, quote, flight training organizations are continuing to increase the size of their fleet and staff. Flight instructors are content in their current roles, and students and pilots of all experience levels continue to train and express interest in pursuing additional ratings and endorsements. So that's great news. And in fact, I think you can see that, you know, it's like when stuff starts to line up, it you know, you can, you, you can draw, I think, some pretty solid conclusions. And so it's like the survey, you look at what's going on with the used market with training airplanes and how hard they are to find and how much the prices have gone up. You look at new orders and it's like, okay, you know, that end of the market, clearly very strong. And, you know, once airline hiring starts to bounce back, those folks are going to be ready to go. You're right about that. And thinking about the General Aviation and Manufacturing Association numbers that we've talked about before, Ian, with Textron and Piper and Diamond and Cirrus, you know, a lot of those models are out there for, you know, for students. And there's a big push on that. In fact, as we spoke about just a couple of weeks ago with the gamma numbers, most of those aircraft were training aircraft and that helped bolster the market in general. So that, that's a good point. Now, you're, you're a flight instructor yourself. Uh-huh. Now, when you were flight instructing, were you within a, were you affiliated with anyone or just independent? I've done both, but you know, like most instructors, once once you get past sort of that initial career stage, you go independent. Yeah, and and sort of pick and choose. And of the folks who responded, more than fifty three percent of the flight instructors said they operated independently, not with a school, basically just by themselves, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. There are like something, I don't know, there's like 100,000 flight instructors in the country. So obviously not all of them work at schools. Many of them probably haven't instructed in years. So yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. The other, I think, good thing that came out of this was, I think people are constantly wondering about, you know, students in particular, if what they're paying is is sort of jives with the rest of the industry. And so they, yeah, they did put out some prices. The median price for flight instruction, now this is nationwide, and of course, regionally, it's going to vary. But it was between 55 and 65 bucks an hour. Right. And I think that that, I mean, I've been paying, uh, fortunately, just a couple of bucks less than that at $50 an hour here in Frederick, Maryland. Now, you know, it could be a lot more money in other places, California and New York, depending on the population. But the other thing was, how much are we paying for a typical training aircraft by the hour? You know, that varies wildly, too. Well, about $150 an hour was the average. Yeah, I could see that. I've seen definitely, you know, you see more late model Skyhawks, you know, they're going to maybe go for a little bit more, like you said, in California, other places, but there's still those 150s out there that are bringing that average down a little bit. Yeah, I fly that Westminster Air about 150. It definitely brings it down. And the other thing, thinking about thinking about just the hourly rate, you know, we're all about trying to get more people into aviation. And Redbird, of course, uh, does flight simulation. That's what they're known for. They, They brought a lot of technology to the table. And they found that simulator access was around $45 to $85 an hour, depending on the complexity of the simulator. So even if it was at the high end of that scale, it's about half the price of what it would be in a typical 172. Yeah, good point. So you can get twice as many hours or more. 
Yeah. So really glad they did that. Good news all around. You can get that for free, by the way, on the Redbird site if you want to read more or uh, read the story on, on our website. David, I want to finish up this week. Now, this is something that, that may seem minor, but I think is going to have a, a big impact for folks as they fly around the country. And that is proper ramp transparency and labeling. And um, this is something that's frustrated me in the past, definitely. Yeah, when you pull into an airport that might not be your home base, let's, let's face it, we're all about traveling. And we talked about traveling at the top of the program today. But there are 300 different signs that would indicate parking. That's confusing, man. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different stuff. And, you know, I'm sure you've parked before in a, you know, in a base ramp and a base tie down. And, you know, you walk way over to the FBO and they say, where are you parked? And it's like over there. And they're like, well, no, sorry, that's that's not for transients. But you never know because it's not like, you know, there's a big flashing neon sign telling you to where to park. So AOPA and some others have have joined together to try and standardize some of this stuff, to try and, and get the FAA to recognize a standard set of labels, three labels to keep it easy, that will tell pilots immediately, okay, you can park here if you're looking for this, here if you're looking for this, or here if you're looking for this. That's right. Now, I should correct myself. It's 30 different parking terms, not 300, but 300 yeah. organizations <laughs> got together. It feels like 300. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, yeah, it does, especially when you're especially when you're at an unfamiliar airport and you don't know exactly where to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so boiling it down to three recommended parking area terms, and why don't we list them one by one? Yeah, so FBO ramp. That seems pretty self-explanatory, but it's important. That's where you would park and expect to get FBO level service. So fuel, cookies, you know, a pilot lounge, and also, it should be said, where you should expect to have to pay FBO type fees. Makes sense. Then the second parking sign, if you will, would be a GA transient ramp, and that's an apron where itinerant general aviation operators can park the aircraft without FBO services. And subject to terms and conditions locally, but still, I would think less expensive, less services, things like that. Yeah, you're just popping in and out, want to pick somebody up, drop somebody off. It's like, don't need fuel. That's where you would go. Transient ramp, in and out. Yep. And the last is the tenant ramp. And this is for what I talked about, which is, you know, maybe you're unfamiliar with the airport, you land... And that's a place where you're not going to want to park because that's where, you know, the base tenants are, are tied down and, and that's saved for them. And you don't want to take somebody's spot, obviously. And you can't expect any services in that area either. That's right. And those three different classifications, I think, are pretty darn cool. It's a good idea, standardizing some of this, eliminating confusion, and you know, it's making it more efficient for everybody. Yeah, totally agree. So we're hoping that goes through. So like we said, AOPA and others are asking the FAA to recognize those and and we'll keep you updated on what happens in the meantime we want to bring on captain jenny Beatty. like we said david really really interesting story and she's got some i think really important things to say now that it is women's history month in march and it was international women's day earlier this month and you connected with her and it, i just thought we had a great chat about some of the issues that she and other women have faced Welcome to Hangar Talk, Captain Jenny Beatty. I want to introduce you as a professional pilot, a captain, a 737 captain for a major airline, uh, who was often the only woman in every new hire pilot class. 
and we're going to talk with you today about gender bias and other biases in the aviation industry as we try to change this a little bit. And we also have Hangar Talk co-host Ian Twombly standing by, and Ian has uh, written a a story about what he called the seven percenters, which kind of refers to the overall number of, of female professional pilots. So we'll get a, a little bit better handle on that. But I wanted to introduce Boeing 737 Captain Jenny Beatty, who has done a lot of research on bias. Thank you so much, David and Ian and the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association for inviting me to speak today. I'm very honored to be here and to talk about this topic, which I know is very sensitive and difficult for people to talk about. But I believe very strongly that it's time, if not beyond time, that we do speak openly and very frankly about these issues. And I really appreciate, Ian, your article that you published almost two years ago now, that was, as far as I know, the first time that there was a mainstream article in a widely circulated magazine that went beyond the women's community, women pilots community, to discuss these issues. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate being asked to speak here today. Ian, you brought something up in that article that I think Captain Beatty could talk to us about too, which, you know, we were looking at about 7% of all certificated pilots are female. And and that was up from 6.2%. So I actually have looked at the numbers closely and I'm not sure where you got the 7% figure. And I have a suspicion that using the FAA data, which they produce every year on certificated pilots, I think that included student pilots. When you remove student pilots from that figure, because student pilots are not certificated. And when you remove them, the figure it is actually, it's 5.88% right now that with the latest data that the FAA has um, produced. And, uh, and that's a li- removing student pilots and removing remote or drone pilots. So I do hear a lot of people saying 7%. It might be from your article. It might be from another source. But, but student pilots, as you know, not all of them finish. And they aren't really uh, certificated pilots. So it's a much lower number. Now, we're still, I don't want to quibble over the numbers, but the bigger point is that these are very small numbers. And I've been a pilot for almost 40 years. And when I learned to fly, I think it was around 3% women. When I got my ATP, my airline transport pilot certificate, and it was in 1988, it was about 1.5. It might've been 1.3. Anyway, it was a quite a small percentage of women holding ATPs. And now ATPs, Again, latest data from 2019 from the FAA, 4.55% ATPs. So on the face of it, you know, we've made progress, but that's over 35 years almost. Not anything, like you pointed out in your article, nothing like the progress that has been made in other occupations, in the law field, in the medical field, even in engineering. Uh, Well, that's a great point you bring up right off the bat, which is that I, I think we did at the time include student pilots in that 7% number. And it, of course, it shows that a high percentage of women start training and, and don't finish. And so that was actually the, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, which was, why do you think that is? I mean, obviously, m- many student pilots don't finish for any number of reasons, but the data shows that clearly women don't finish at a higher percentage. And so I'm, I'm curious why you think that might be the case. So there are the reasons that are reasons any pilot might not finish. One big one might be they run out of money, run out of time. 
you know, have, are drawn away by other interests or family or whatever things going on in their life that takes them away from flying. Frankly, aptitude, right? Men and women sometimes in taking flying lessons find out that they don't have the aptitude or it's not quite what they expected and they don't continue it. And I think it's difficult to prove a negative, so it's hard to know the exact reasons. How do you ask the people why they quit when they're already gone? So that's that would be a, an interesting study to do. But part, one of the reasons I'm beginning to speak out is that we have to examine why are women and also people of color not learning to fly, becoming licensed pilots, and progressing in, also progressing into professional pilot careers at the same rate or at greater numbers, and still it is a field dominated by men and by white men. And one of the issues that I think has not been adequately studied and addressed is bias, harassment, and discrimination. So I put together a little bit of a timeline to show how at every level this can affect a woman or a person of color. I'm focusing a little bit more on women today, but many of these issues also affect people who are not of the white and Caucasian race uh, due to prejudice and discrimination. And let me walk you through how you know what that looks like at each stage. So for example, let's say you have a young girl who says she wants to be a pilot. You know, she could be anywhere from six to 12, 14 years old. And what does she hear? I want to fly. And her parents or people around her teacher say, well, sure, you could be a flight attendant. Or they even say, no, girls don't do that. That's for boys. So right, right out of the gate when it's the ideal time, uh, and it's when the time when most pilots, if you ask any pilot when they first thought about being a pilot, they usually name a very young age. So if they're discouraged at that age, they may go off in a completely different direction. And uh, I've met people later in life who've changed careers into aviation because they were deterred at a very young age. So right there, that's a big issue. Or they might not have been aware of that as a young student. They might not have been aware of science, technology, engineering, and math opportunities, of which a quick plug for AOPA, we have our whole You Can Fly curriculum for ninth to 12th graders. And surprisingly, about 23% of those students are female. So that is moving in the right direction. But so many folks come from a socioeconomic background that might not include aviation, even as a career choice in the back of their mind. Yes. And I, I think that's a fantastic program. And it's really encouraging to hear how many women are joining it. I also looked at your data and, and a great many people from underrepresented ethnic groups are also active in that program. And I think that's fantastic. And these are really, really important first steps. The other thing is, um, you know, there are many organizations out there. I'm going to put in a big plug for the 99s, International Organization of Women Pilots, and also Women in Aviation International and many others are out there. We're in the schools. We, we have, and especially with the internet now, there are a lot of women who are role models. And one of the biggest things, both for females, but also for people of color, you have to see it to be it. It really helps to be able to see someone in the role that you want to have. Now, but I'm going to go on and tell you how this can progress and eat away at this desire to learn to fly. So let's say that young girl or young woman just goes out to the airport to get take an intro flight. Sometimes there are really overt, but sometimes subtle hints and uh, microaggressions that discourage her. 
they may be little comments where they, well, they may favor the boys that show up. Let's say it's the EA Young Eagles program, and maybe there's subtle. I'm not blaming the EA. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to single them out at all. Not at all. But I'm just saying that sometimes it's very unconscious that boys and men are favored over girls and women. We've also heard of cases where an instructor will take a woman up and very deliberately do semi-aerobatic maneuvers in order to make her sick. And then there's outright harassment and dismissive comments that, you know, why do you want to do that? Or why should I waste my time teaching you to fly? And some of your other, some of your research that was actually on the 99 side, there's a video that on there where you point out that harassment causes women and other people to be turned off and, and turned away from the joys of flying and from aviation careers. So that's yet another way. That's right. So let's say the woman continues and decides she wants to take flying lessons. We've, I've talked again, I've been talking to women. Uh, I've probably talked to close to hundred women at all phases and, and realms of aviation from student pilot all the way to very senior airline pilots. So covering a real broad range of professions and segments of aviation and also age. And one thing I've heard from some student pilots and people who are private pilots, new pilots, is that they feel like they're not being given any priority by their instructor. The instructor's giving higher priority to other students who are men. And the in the flight school, that that is subtly reinforced. The airplanes are given to other people, uh, men. And uh, the women just really aren't encouraged to finish up and, and keep progressing. And frankly, sometimes it seems like they may be, be being milked for their money. And this is very unfortunate, but also some women experience direct sexual harassment by their instructors. And I can talk to you in a minute about uh, specific ways that I've um, scenarios that I've heard from women that are uh, very troubling about sexual harassment during their flight training. But to go on, next deterrent, now you go for your FAA medical. And I have uh, talked to numerous women, who, and this was happened to me a long time ago, where I went for my FAA medical. You don't know any better. There you are with a doctor, a doctor in a white lab coat with an MD behind his name, and he does a breast exam or a vaginal exam. And you know what? The FAA does not require those. Yeah, this this was shocking to me. Yeah, I saw when I saw that on your video, I couldn't believe that you brought that up. Yeah, I couldn't believe. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. I couldn't believe it happened. And anal exams, prostate exams for men, and that is not required. Now, I will say a little caveat: if you have health issues in those areas, you can request an examination from your AME. But you can also refuse an examination from your AME and you can produce records if the FAA requests records and send those to Oklahoma City. You do not have to submit to these exams. And for an EKG, if you're a woman, you do not have to remove your bra. And for and if you do agree to these exams, there should be a same-sex chaperone in the room. And in some states, that's required by law. I want to give a shout out right now to the AOPA medical service that you provide. Fantastic, fantastic uh, resource for all pilots. That and your legal resources are amazing and unparalleled. And But this is important. That, again, as an innocent person who just wants to learn to fly, you don't know. You don't know that these are not required exams. You might even feel violated by that, you know, as well. And that would turn you off from any professional aviation endeavors and after feeling violated. That's right. And then now I get to the next stage. Now it's time for your check ride. And this is something that I've re very recently been talking to several women, uh, a dozen or more women, about their experiences on check rides. 
with DPEs, designated pilot examiners. And what we found out uh, in doing some more research is that the FAA screens and selects and supervises their DPEs, but they're considered contractors. And what we found is that when there's unprofessional behavior by those DPEs, they're not held to the same standard that an FAA employee would be as far as their professional conduct especially in regards to sexual harassment. And so I have heard, now here's a woman going for her check ride. On the one hand, I've heard a very, what I just call unprofessional behavior, bullying, shouting, swearing. And presumably this happens to male uh, pilot applicants as well. Completely inappropriate. But then I've also heard sexual come-ons before the check ride, after the check ride, or uh, if there's a continuance, let's say the weather's bad, now there's a continuance and a couple week lag, getting on in really inappropriate personal texts from that DPE. And here's where I want to begin, uh, point out right away uh, about sexual harassment. One hallmark or requirement, if you will, of sexual harassment is that it relies on a power differential between the two people. It's always about abuse of power. If the two people have equal power, there won't be sexual harassment. And so what are we talking about in these, all these scenarios that I've talked about so far? There's a pilot and a, and a flight instructor versus a student pilot. There's a medical doctor versus someone looking to get a medical exam. And now there's a pilot examiner who has the ability to pass or fail you and you're the applicant. So the, the, this harassment relies on that power and it is abuse of that power. So I've heard of uh, those kinds of incidents. There's another type of harassment. Sometimes it's also called sexual harassment. Another term that's used is gender harassment, which is when someone gives put downs, they little microaggressions, little snippy remarks, uh, nasty remarks that are degrading to women. And so it's in the opposite of a come on, it's a put down. And it can be, you know, why do you want to be a commercial pilot? You know, how come you're not at home with your family or women don't belong in aviation? You know, uh, shockingly, comments like these are still made. Well, let, let's jump in, Jenny, just with, with a couple of questions. You bet. Uh, obviously, you know, we talked to the, about the numbers at the beginning, right? So if whatever, somewhere between 95 and 97 percent of the community is male, obviously, there's a job to be done to support women and and speak directly to them and minorities and to help support them throughout the process. But I feel like a lot of the conversation is, is either making men either aware of their behavior or sort of stopping it in its tracks. So, you know, speaking to, to them for a minute, it's like how, what are some things that, that they can do to be, I think, better aware of the behavior, especially if nobody calls it out? Because I, I think what, what we see a lot is that, you know, somebody will, will observe it and just not call out this poor behavior. So what what can they do to, to better welcome other people into the community? Yeah. So you bring up a really good point. Part of why we haven't heard and talked a lot about these issues is because it hasn't really been allowed or, or acceptable to talk about these issues. And women... I only know the experience of women. Mostly we talk amongst ourselves. Uh, we confide in our girlfriends and very close friends. I will tell you, I've had women who shared their stories with me and they told me they literally didn't tell their intimate partners because they were afraid of the reaction that their intimate partner or their spouse would have. So 
there's a real code of silence and suppression uh, of this these experiences. So one of the biggest things, I, I actually have uh, three points that I think all of us, not just men, but all of us need to do. And what, the very first is to examine our own personal biases. Look at ourselves and think carefully about how it is that we view other people in aviation who are different from us, whether that's different gender, different sexual preference, different race and ethnicity, different backgrounds, civilian versus military, and really examine our assumptions and biases and prejudices so that then we can learn to stop those assumptions in the tracks once we become aware of them. So that requires some self-study. And it requires, frankly, I believe, talking to some of these other people in the community, which brings me to my next step, which is you really need to listen to those other people. Listen with an open mind. And I urge you to believe them when they share their stories. Their stories, if they are willing to share them, that's their lived experience. And if your first reaction is, well, that's not still happening in 2021, or, well, I know Sam, and he wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't do that. If that's your first instinct or the first words out of your mouth, you have just dismissed and gaslighted that person who's shared that lived experience with you. So it's time to talk less, listen more, and really pay attention. Stop treating other people with these microaggressions. And again, many of them are unconscious that makes it obviously hard to identify. So it, it does need you know, some self-examination. The next thing you can do is go directly to people in those communities, whether it's an individual or in a group setting, and ask, you know, what can we do to help? What are the issues that you face? How can we change and reduce those barriers to aviation that you experienced for others who come to follow behind you? And intervene and interrupt. One thing I've heard from different women and from men, I should say that the women report to me, this is what their male friends say to them after the fact. Let's say that there's a harassing uh, comment made or a situation, and there is a male friend there or another witness who's a man who's there who witnesses it. And often that man says and does nothing. And sometimes after the fact, they say, well, it looked like you were handling it. Or you didn't say anything, so I thought that it didn't bother you. This is not really what's happening to that woman or that person. They have just been attempting to handle it as best they can. And, and often it's not safe or doesn't feel safe to confront that person. So guess what? The person who holds the power in the room, which is usually the men, usually the white people, it's incumbent on them to interrupt that situation in the moment when it's happening. And there are some phrases that you can say that are, Interrupt the moment without being an really antagonistic. You can you know, stop someone and say, you know, what do you mean by that? And I don't mean in an angry, aggressive way, like, what do you mean by that? I mean, really, honestly, what do you mean by that comment? And you can also just make a statement. Often, offensive comments that are made, let's say, you know, I'm a white person, but when I hear racist comments, that's offensive to me. And I can speak up and say, that's offensive. Please stop saying that. So we need to normalize all of us making these little interruptions to disrupt 
the the situations that are harassment, bias, prejudice, discrimination that are happening right in front of our eyes. And instead of leaving it to the person who's being targeted with that behavior and leaving it all on them to fix, we can take some responsibility ourselves. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, all, across all kinds of industries, we see that. And so it, actually in your, your webinar for the 99s, it, it was interesting because you, you did you talked about not only is there sort of the the societal pressure, uh, especially for moms um, to you know stay at home with kids, but that a lot of uh, women pilots have heard that directly from their male counterparts, as if you know the guy also shouldn't be home raising kids. That's the woman's job apparently to him, but yeah, that they hear this directly. That it's like, hey, you you what are you doing here? You're a mom. It's like you're you're clearly being a bad mom by being here. So um, it's it's just shocking that somebody would say that. So women are asked illegal questions like, what does your husband think about you applying for this job? Or do you plan to have children? Do you have children at home? You know, what about your family? Or there, or comments are made to them like, well, if we hire you, you're just going to quit to have babies. Or they make assumptions and they say, well, if we hire you, you're just going to leave us because, you know, all these other companies want to hire women and you're just going to get hired away. <laughs> well, Talk about a catch-22. I mean, you can't get qualified for a better job if you don't get this job. And, uh, and it's a really big assumption to make. So those are not illegal to ask, but they are still being asked at some of these really important junctures, which is women up, uh, applying for time-building jobs. Now, let, let us talk about women uh, who decide to become mothers and want to be mothers. Can you think of a career where women in aviation, go away and fly for several days on several trips, uh, trips that are several days in duration, and do that on a weekly basis. And it's a female dominant profession. Can you guess what that profession is? Only thing that I, that would come close to a, a female dominant profession, uh, and and I'm probably going to be inaccurate, but not going away on trips, but just uh, you know maybe education. Well, I was going to say in aviation. So the profession is. Flight attendants. Oh, right. Okay. You got me. You got me on that. Well, that's yet another stereotype that really doesn't have to be. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the stereotype part of it, but what I want to reference is to this day, uh, now, uh, as you may know, flight attendants carry an airman certificate from the FAA. So that means the FAA produces that data. And right now, 79% of flight attendants are women. And I work with these women. I know many of them are married. Many of them are uh, have children. Some are divorced and single mothers. And there they are working in aviation, going on trips, going, you know, traveling long distances, and they're away from home. Same job that I have. So in other words, the parallel is there that it can be done. It absolutely, C-A-N, can be done. Because if you're a flight attendant and you're female, you're already on trips out of town trying to raise a family. So it's, it's proof that, that it could happen. That's my point. Now, let's be clear. There are some hurdles that women pilots have that make women flight attendants don't, who are mothers. And part of it is back to the time building jobs. Some of those time building jobs don't have the flexibility. They need that pilot when they need that pilot. And it is less compatible for a pilot who has responsibilities at home that cannot be shared with somebody else, for example, or given to somebody else. Um, and this is where the United States really deviates from the first world nations or most or developed nations of Europe. All those developed nations of Western Europe have generous 
paid paternity and maternity leave for both parents, paid long-term, and not just uh, during the last stages of pregnancy and the birth, but beyond that for bonding with the child and spending the first months, even in the first year with that newborn. We don't have that. We have very limited maternity leave under the Family Medical Leave Act. Some women, depending on how you've worked and the company that you work for, don't qualify. I have a friend who had a fantastic corporate flying job. She flew not only she flew three different aircraft for that company, including a helicopter. She got pregnant, went in, told the chief pilot. She was called in a few days later. She was fired, and it was legal. Why was that legal? Because of the size of the company. If the company size is small enough, they are not protected by law, by the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, I believe it's called. So she lost her fabulous job. And they told her, we love you. You're a fantastic pilot. We, we love you. You're fired. So these are issues that affect women that don't affect men. And what can we do? Well, we're still trying to get the laws changed in this company. I'm sorry, in this country to bring paid parental leave, not only for the mother, but for father or any new parents, also for adoptive parents. It's a slow slog. Where we're seeing some progress is with larger companies, larger airlines. My airline, through negotiations with our union and the company, we have secured a short amount of paid maternity leave only for women. We're working hard to get that to get men at it because we know that new fathers also want to be at home and care for their newborns, bond with their newborns. And also sometimes, as you may know, women in childbirth, uh, after childbirth, sometimes there are medical issues that you know they need, absolutely need assistance in the home. And maybe there's other smaller children and assistance is needed in the home. At any rate, the point is the burden of childcare uh, and taking care of hearth and home still falls to women. Statistically, all the studies show women carry more of that burden than husbands do. Mothers carry more than fathers do. And yet so many women in aviation, especially when you get into these higher level uh, professions, these are very, very well-paying jobs. Often these women are the breadwinners for their families. And it's a big deal if they are not able to work for a while and have to go without pay. It's a big deal if they aren't able to breastfeed their child, which they really want to, which is ideal for their own health and certainly for the newborn's health. And this is an area that we need to work on and are working on to improve. But we have to do it on a company-by-company company basis. It's really sad that we're not able to achieve greater change that, that affects more people. Yeah, that, that argument, might, there might be something left to be said for that uh, across the board. And generally, aviators are supposed to be more health conscious uh, across the board anyway, because we do have to have the medical exams that, that you mentioned. I, I was going to take the conversation in a slightly different direction real quick, if you don't mind, Jenny. And that is, you know, in the 21st century, we have a lot of social media out there. We have folks uh, who are on uh, Facebook and Instagram and posting you know, pictures of the, the glamorous lifestyle uh, that we lead as, as GA pilots and as, as professional pilots. But um, looking at that seriously for a minute, it does actually look like it's an attractive feel to a lot of people. And that actually, in a way, if you think about social media and how we get the word out to, to 
you know, open that aviation community to others. I do see a lot more females posting on Instagram. And I'm just wondering if that could be something that actually helps us in, in a small way to, to get there. Well, two things to say right off the bat. First of all, these experiences of harassment, discrimination, bias, they happen out in the world, no matter your profession, frankly. I mean, this is part of what's going on in our whole society. And so it isn't exclusive to aviation. So don't think you can dodge it by not being in aviation. But one of the factors that makes harassment more likely to happen in any you know workplace and so on is when you're part of a very small demographic, as women are and as people of color are. But I also want to say, talking about it as we are right now and as we are beginning to do in our community is really important. It, and so to say, to make it clear to women that if this happens to you, it wasn't just you. You aren't alone. It wasn't your fault. This is happening to other people. You're not alone. And I, I have to just really emphasize that the more women I've spoken with, um, the better they feel when they know that. When I hear their story and I say, yes, I have heard other women go through something very similar. It just is a relief to them to know that it, it's not just them. And third, I'm very optimistic that we can we can change this. That's what we're all here working on today and uh, going forward. Organization, the 99s, I need to say, we're actively working on some resources to help women pilots and advocate and offer support to women going through these, these experiences. And I mentioned the other organizations that are doing that as well. And so we're working to change it so that you don't have to experience uh, what I and others have experienced in the past. Last of all, there are more and more women. So you've got more and more women and people of color who are available to you as role models, mentors, even if it's just someone that you see on the internet and, and picture them in your head as someone that you can emulate and become one day, that's fantastic. But also the different organizations that I've mentioned, we all have mentoring programs. In the 99s, we have the Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative, specifically for women who want to enter professional pilot careers. It's an intensive mentoring program, mentored by women for women. And the other organizations also have informal and different styles of mentoring programs. OBAP has a fantastic mentoring program. This makes all the difference in the world for helping guide and support and direct and encourage and motivate and, and really support people who otherwise might just have to figure it out on their own or, and, and flounder a little bit. Honestly, it's, this is a tough career path for anybody. It's tough for men. It's tough for white men. I mean, it, this is a tough career to, to, to make it step by step. It's hard to find the money. Training is hard, you know? Sorry. I mean, it's fun. But, but it, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a marathon, the way I put it, it's a marathon. It's a sprint. And, and that's true for anybody. And so the more support you can find, um, the better and, and the more likely that you'll succeed. And find your tribe. We're here. Find your tribe. That, that's a really good way to close the program out. And unless um, you had anything else you wanted to add for us, uh, Captain Beatty or Ian, uh, I, like finding, I like finding our tribe. I think that's going to be a key buzzword looking to the future and finding those mentors, um, as you had when you were growing up, your, your mother and your grandma were pilots. That's right. So amazing. I'm, yeah. Pretty unusual. Now my grandmother was quite elderly when I learned to fly. Uh, but my mother and father were big supporters and I was lucky that women who were in the baby boomer era broke through some barriers 
I don't think I wouldn't be a major airline pilot today if, if they had not broken through those barriers. Someone had to be first and they broke down those doors. I was able to walk through those doors and I'm eternally grateful to them. I'm also very grateful. I want to uh, give a shout out to the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund, which gave me a research scholar grant to work on this research about harassment and bias. And uh, I really appreciate the support of the 99s. And we all, in turn, are working to support women in our community uh, of pilots. And I'm very grateful to the Aircraft Owners and Pots Association for everything that you're doing for all pilots and now especially for young people to encourage more young people to enter these careers. It's incredibly rewarding. Like I said, I can't imagine doing anything else. <laughs> this is just um, the most amazing career. I'm, it's going to be really hard to retire. <laughs> and maybe then that's when I'm going to buy an airplane and, and, and do more pleasure flying. But uh, it's just really amazing. That sounds good. That's a great way to end it. I really enjoyed that. I, I do think that we could look to the future and, and have some positivity here as things change. Yes. The numbers are going up. As small as they are uh, year over year and, and over the longer term, they are going up. And we've done a lot of promotion and recruitment. And it's also time to look at really without fear and, and with bravery and courage, look at the barriers that are there and work to dismantle them. All right. Well, thank you, Captain Jenny Beatty. We appreciate your time here on Hangar Talk. And and I know Ian appreciates it too. And hopefully our paths will cross one day in person when things get a little bit more normalized. But until then, thank you very much for opening our eyes to what we can do uh, regarding gender bias and diversity inclusion. It's something that we all have to work on uh, uh, on our own and together as a group. And maybe we could bring some of these barriers down just a little bit quicker and just uh, open that pilot population to a lot more folks. Yes. And I can't thank you enough, David and Ian and AOPA for inviting me to talk. So important. And I, um, I really applaud you for being brave to, to bring this discussion out into the open. It's time. And I, I'm very grateful to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, um, David, a lot of stuff in that conversation really, really got me. The one in particular I just thought was um, the thing about the medical exam. That just blew me away. As well as other things. I mean, she told us that she was the only female in several different classes that she was in. And we're talking about, you know, with dozens of other pilots. And so we need to up those numbers. And Ian, you wrote a really good comprehensive story about this a few years ago. And um, I think you went a long way towards uh, getting some of that transparency out there and, and what we can do in different efforts to get more folks involved. You know, we really still need to address gender bias and we need to address diversity as well. Absolutely. Well, hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk. You could also get us on Google and iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And you could probably ask Alexa to say, play the Hangar Talk podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. See you. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.